Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation 15, as we continue to make our way through this incredible book, we're probably on the downhill slope in a way after we get through the last rounds of seven and then we get to the wonderful end of the book. Revelation 15, and we will cover from verse 5 in Revelation 15 all the way to 16.1. to 16.1. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that you would be glorified in our midst tonight, in our hearts and in our lives. Pray that your kingdom would grow and expand to the ends of the earth as we see pictured for us here in Revelation. And Father, as it does, help us to trust you. We pray that you would give us this day our daily bread. You would forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Father, help us trust you as you work out your perfect plan of salvation in our life. Help us be patient. Help us to glorify your name, even as we can't see the ends of all your judgment being worked out. May you be honored with our time tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, we hear that prayer that I just prayed a lot, don't we? Lord's Prayer. We hear it in some form every Sunday morning with whoever's preaching before they preach. We probably, many of us, say it throughout the week. I'm guessing a lot of us maybe haven't memorized. Maybe some of you kids are even working on memorizing the Lord's Prayer. I remember when I was about many of your kids' age, Right around 10, I memorized it, and it was such a big blessing in my life. And that's a great thing to memorize the Lord's Prayer. But one of my worries is that we hear it so often. I'm not saying it's a bad thing we hear it often, but we hear it so often, it can kind of become almost like background noise, like white noise to us. We hear it in the church service, and it just becomes the transition from singing to preaching. Or we say it when we get up from the day. Or when you go to bed at night and it just becomes the normal routine of your life. 
And sometimes we don't even stop, at least if you're like me, we don't stop to think about what it is we're actually praying. For example, have you ever wondered what it would look like for God to answer the last request in the Lord's Prayer? To deliver us from evil. You ever thought about that? I mean, in one sense, Christ already has, right? He's delivered us from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. And He's freed us from that, but we are very much in the presence of sin, aren't we? Even within our own hearts, which is why we want to pray, deliver us from evil. But what do we want to see happen when we pray that prayer? What do we expect to happen when we say, deliver us from evil? I think some of us actually think, well, Lord, separate me from evil. Separate me and my family. Keep us kind of a a hedge of protection. You know, if you're really old school, you might pray that way. A hedge of protection around my family. Don't let evil influences come into my life, whether it be culture or politics or the lies of the world. Don't let us be lured away from you and your word, God. And if things get really bad here, Lord, take us somewhere else where we are separating ourselves from evil. Some other promised land, Idaho or wherever that might be for many of us. Maybe we think that way. Lord, separate me from evil. Some of us might think, well, no, what's happening there is when we're praying deliver us from evil, what we're asking the Lord is merely to do is to sanctify us. Lord, get the evil out of my heart. Continue the work that you began in me. Make me holy. Save me from the pride and the evil and the arrogance and the lust and the greed, the many things that crop up in my heart that I hate. Maybe when we pray deliver us from evil, we're praying along with Paul in Romans 7 when he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm sure many of us have prayed that way before. Now, I know there are probably tons of ways that most of us want that prayer to be answered, deliver us from evil. And there are a lot of good ways. But I want to say that most of what we expect when we pray deliver us from evil, I would bet falls miserably short of what God actually wants to do in our life and what He wants for all of His people. Because God doesn't just want to separate us from evil. God doesn't just want to take evil out of our hearts and cleanse us from evil. God does want to do those things. God wants to destroy evil. God wants to punish evil people. We don't want to separate those two things. In hell for all of eternity. That's the only deliverance that God is satisfied with. Truly satisfied with. So when we pray deliver us from evil, what should we expect it to look like? We expect it to look like revelation. We expect it to look like salvation through judgment. As we have seen in these many cycles, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And we will see again now when we get to chapter 16 through these bowls, these plague judgments. And as Jason mentioned last week, we're entering into this part of Revelation where all of this Exodus imagery is going to come back to us. All these plagues and all these imagery that we see in the Old Testament. And we see a new exodus for God's people. Eternal deliverance from our slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin. And that's what we see over these next few weeks. So as we finish this chapter in chapter 15, I want to ask three questions and answer three questions together as we talk about this final exodus in the next couple weeks. So the first question is this. What are the means, the means of this final exodus Second is, who is the source 
of the final exodus? And lastly, what is the goal of this final exodus? Most of these are pretty easy to answer, but the answers are so important. So what are the means, the source, and the goal of this final exodus? Now, if you know the first exodus well, if you know your Old Testament, I'm sure you can guess what the means of the new exodus are because they're pretty much the same in some ways. Look at verse 6 with me again. Verse 6 says, And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. Now, we we were introduced to them last week at the beginning of chapter 15. Look at 15, verse 1. And it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. So you can see the means of deliverance, can't you? The plagues themselves. And then we see in chapter 16, verse 1, we actually see those plagues being poured out. Look at 16.1 again with me. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls full of the wrath of God. So these plagues are the means by which God will deliver His people. And we will go into detail next week. But just listen to these plagues, for example, to see if they sound familiar. We'll see sores. Sores on people in verse 2 of chapter 16. Water turned to blood in verses 3 and 4. Sun scorching people in verse 8. Darkness in the land in verse 10. Demonic frogs in 13 and 14. And then huge hail falling from heaven at the end of the chapter in verse 21. I hope you can already see what John is trying to do. He's pulling all this imagery and saying just like the first exodus, God is going to use plagues once again in this new exodus. Now, how that will look and what that will be like, we'll talk a little bit more about next week. The big question on most of our minds probably right now is when will these things happen? When will these plagues come to the earth? Because I know when you even just hear that and think of demonic frogs and hailstorms, you're like, we haven't seen anything like that in our history at all. Nothing even compares to that besides the first exodus. Plus, in chapter 15, verse 1, John kind of implies that maybe this is all future. Look at 15.1 with me again. 15.1, towards, towards the end of that verse, it says, These seven plagues are the last. They're the last. Why? For with them the wrath of God is finished. And then at the end of chapter 15, verse 8, 15.8 kind of says the same thing. The very end of that verse, it says, No one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Well, if this finishes the wrath of God, if this is the end, the last, doesn't that imply they come right around the time Jesus comes and He's not here yet? This has to be the last in terms of chronological order. And that's where a lot of the dispensationalists want to go. A lot of the literalists, they say this has to be talking about a big giant timeline. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, all those cycles that Jason talked about last week. Well, the bulls must be the end of that. The only problem is we've been talking about every week, it seems. These are repeated parallel visions, aren't they? We've been saying they're talking about the same period of history from Christ's first coming to His second coming as God works out His plan of salvation through judgment. And I know we've been showing lots of evidence along the way, but I want to give you a little bit more or maybe even a reminder of some of the evidence of why these are parallel cycles before we enter into this last cycle. 
some proof that shows us, well, this is not just one big chronological timeline. These are repeated cycles. And the first piece of evidence is probably even maybe the most obvious of all. They're all sevens. They're all sevens. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. And if we've learned anything in Revelation, maybe we've learned numbers in Revelation are very symbolic. Every single one of them. And seven has the idea of perfection, but it also, especially in Revelation and even other places in the Bible, it has the idea of completion, fullness. Seven days the world was created. And so in each cycle of seven, we see a full picture of recreation. That's the idea here in each of these cycles. And as with everything else from Revelation, it comes right out of the Old Testament. Sevenfold judgment is not anything new. In fact, at the end of Leviticus, in Leviticus 26, you don't have to turn there. You can read that whole chapter later because there's a ton there. As God is laying out covenant curses for the nation of Israel as they're about to go into the promised land, He talks about what will happen if they fall into idolatry. And what He says here is this, Leviticus 26.18, And if in spite of this you will not listen to Me, then I will punish you again sevenfold for your sins. He says it three more times in the same chapter. Sevenfold punishment, sevenfold discipline, sevenfold judgment. He's talking about the sevenfold because he's saying this will be complete judgment. Truly just judgment. Perfect judgment. That's the idea here. This is actually even talked about with pagans as well, with unbelievers in Psalm 79, verse 12. It says, Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the idolaters, Asaph is saying, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. So you see, sevenfold judgment is the idea of complete judgment. It would be ridiculous to think one cycle of seven would be incomplete if we take it in these Old Testament terms. Now, another piece of evidence might be that these have the same structure. And I hope by now in Revelation you've started to notice that. Every single one of these cycles kind of looks the same. You see four judgments, whether they're called plagues or they're called the four horsemen, that go out through all the earth. And then the fifth judgment takes it up a whole other notch. It intensifies especially the fourth. And the sixth is just this announcement Really a proclamation that God is on the scene and then Christ comes and finishes His work. Finishes of work of what? Destruction of His enemies and the saving of His people. Which is always a funny thing, by the way. If you take this as chronological events and say, well, just each one's going to the next one, where do these new enemies keep coming from every time? If God's wiping them all out in the sealed judgments, why do they show up again in the trumpet judgments? Did God miss a few, so he has to just do another round and another round until we get to the final ones? No. It's like this because each cycle is talking about the same period in history and God is winding back the clock in each cycle to talk about it again from another angle. Now, let me get back to the original question with that little detour there. How then can we say these are the last judgments? If they're not last chronologically... How can we say that they're last and that they finish the wrath of God? It's actually pretty simple. They're last in terms of they're the last vision that John saw. They're last in the sense they complete the pictures that God gives us of judgment in the book of Revelation. 
I heard a really good illustration. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson. I had a hard time finding it this week, so apologize for maybe citing the wrong source. But he said, imagine it kind of like a hike. Right? If you hike up in maybe the eastern Sierras or something, right? You hike, uh, say you're hiking above Bishop. And you start hiking up the hill, and you go up the hill a little ways, and you, you get tired, so you take a break, you take a drink, and you look down the hill, and you see the lake that you passed. You see, you see the town of Bishop. Maybe you see the car, and you're looking at it, appreciating the view, but then you get your energy, and you hike some more. You go to the next place, and you see, uh, again, the same view from a different angle. You might see more of the lake now because you're a little higher, more of the town. But then eventually, as you hike all the way up the hill, when you get to the top, you get to the top, you say something like, this is the most glorious view of all. This is what the hike was about. This is the last view. It's the same view as before, isn't it? Same thing, same object, but the angle is a little bit different. And with this, I've seen it all. That's kind of what John is saying here. God has given us many views of this plan of salvation through judgment in each of these cycles, but this is the last one. And with it, the judgment of God, the pictured judgment of God in this book is complete. I hope that makes sense a little bit, but there's more to it than that I will get to in a second. So, what are the means? What are the means then of this final exodus? Seven plagues that describe the same plan of redemption that we've seen in each of these cycles. Now, let's get more into the text at verse 5. What's the source? Rather, who's the source? That's a better way to put it. Who's the source in verse 5? After this, I looked. And the sanctuary, or better translated temple there, of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Now, you may look at this and go, that's, that's weird. Why is there a tent in heaven? Things like God could probably get something a little bit more sturdy for heaven than a tent. Well, that's, that's not the intention here. The translation is actually not that helpful because the tent of witness is meant to describe, really to clarify what the sanctuary or the tabernacle is. It's an epigegetical phrase, if you're a Greek student or if you want to go and study those things. So here's a better translation from the New English translation. It says, After these things I looked, and listen, and the temple, which is the tent of testimony, was opened in heaven. Why is the temple being called the tent of testimony? John sees this temple in heaven, which was what the earthly temple was modeled after, right? And he's calling it a tent of testimony. Well, we get a clue because the earthly tabernacle temple was called the tent of testimony, mainly because of what's inside of it. Listen to Exodus 25, verse 21. You shall put in the temple the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. What was that? What did, what did they put in the ark? Ten Commandments. They put the law of God. Well, what, how is the law a testimony? How does the law, what does the law testify to? Well, Paul in Galatians 3 basically says it testifies to our guilt, our sin. It's a, he says it's a tutor, it's a schoolmaster, exposing our need for a Savior and driving us to Christ. It's a merciful thing that God does through the law. But this is similar to this idea. The law here is a testimony of our sin and guilt. But now in heaven, this is driving God to judgment. It's evidence against us, against the world, that broke His law. 
It's evidence that every single one of us have fallen short of the glory of God and deserve the plagues to come. Let us not forget that in that temple stands the resurrected Lord, the living testimony. And all who reject Him will see Him as their judge as He comes in these plagues that we'll see in a little bit. So John is giving us the basis for judgment. Why judgment is necessary, but he still hasn't got to the source. Who's going to carry it out now that we know it needs to be done? Look at verse 6. And out of the sanctuary came seven angels with seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. These angels are dressed beautifully, as we've seen many times in Revelation. Their clothing is a reflection of their purity, their holiness, their status, but mainly the sacredness of their task and who they represent. You might notice they're kind of dressed like priests, aren't they? Old Testament priests, and that's the imagery here. Saying these people, like the priests in the Old Testament, minister before the face of God. So they're set apart as holy and their dress reflects that. I don't know if you remember, but in chapter 1, before we got the letters to the churches, we found out that Jesus is dressed just like this. Because He has ascended to the presence, to this very throne room, right? To this tabernacle of the presence of God. And He is holy and righteous and perfect. And now these angels are given a task. Look at verse 7. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. Now, when we think of bowls, we probably think of like mixing bowls or deep bowls. That's not what we're talking about here. These are priestly censers, almost like a big flat plate in a way. They were used in the tabernacle to carry off the ashes, to carry off the fat from a sacrifice. But what are they being filled with here? Verse 7, right in the middle there. They're full of the wrath of God. There's our source. God is the source of these judgments and this final exodus. I hope that wasn't a surprise, especially if you've been paying attention in Revelation. But why is John telling us that again? We've seen that over and over and over again in this book. Why is he telling us these judgments come from God? Because he wants to remind us that is really good news. Because there is no better judge. There's no higher standard of good. He is the standard. He set the law. He gave the law, the testimony to the church. There is no greater authority or higher court of appeal. He is holy, 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 as it says in Isaiah 6. And even the very creatures in His presence reflect this holiness. The angels in this beautiful priestly garments reflect who God is. He's unapproachable without atonement. And the seraphim, we learn in Isaiah 6, even cover their own eyes. These terrifying creatures can't even look on the holiness of God. And Isaiah, a holy man, when he gets a glimpse of the Lord, what does he say? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. Think about what that is, a prophet saying that I have unclean lips. What's the message that comes out of his mouth? It's God's message. I'm an unclean vessel. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
He gets a glimpse of the Lord in His glory, His holiness. And he's blown away. And we also know that this is the God who is perfect in knowledge, in wisdom. He always chooses the best goals and the best means to those goals. And this is the God who's independent of creation. And He's with, without passions. He can't be manipulated. He's not the God that would fly off the handle and, and make rash decisions like we would. He's not a God that wants to manipulate us in judgment and try to get things from us. He doesn't need us. This is the God, the only God, who will make perfect judgments. Wouldn't it be terrible news if we said this is who God used to be? But John adds, look at the end of verse 7. I love this little addition because it's totally unnecessary. This God lives forever and ever. It's the same God that cursed the world in judgment. That laid the standard in place. His character hasn't changed, which means His judgments will never change. Now you might think, who in the world is crazy enough to rebel against this God? Who in the world would take this God on? We are. We're crazy enough to do that. Every single one of us, aren't we? We have rebelled against this holy, perfect God. We have shaken our fist in His face. And this God graciously sent His Son to live and die for rebellious sinners like us. To take the wrath that we deserve. To take these plagues that we are going to study in the next few weeks upon Himself. And to raise from the dead, conquering sin and death, and ascending to where? Ascending to this heavenly tabernacle. Now here's the incredible part about this passage. That tabernacle used to be a tent of witness against us. In our sin, in Adam. But in Christ, who lives in that tabernacle, it's now a testimony of our salvation. It's a testimony of our deliverance. It's evidence that we are forgiven, cleansed of our sin. We will stand in the presence of God for all of eternity, perfectly holy. Glorious in the end. And that's the God we worship. And that brings us to our last point. We've seen the means of the final exodus, which is the plagues and the source, which is God, our holy God. Now what's the goal? What's the goal of this final exodus? And please, keep these in mind the next couple weeks because we're going to be coming back to these goals again. And there's two goals in the last two verses of chapter 15. The first goal is this, to answer the prayers of of the saints. Look at verse... Well, actually, let me talk about this first before I even get to the verse. Do you remember back in chapter 5? This is not the first time we've seen this scene. In chapter 5, we saw these censers before, didn't we? Do you remember what they were filled with before they were filled with wrath? They were filled with the incense, which represented what? The prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints. And what were they praying for in chapter 5? They were praying for deliverance. They were praying for judgment. They were praying for justice. If you remember the martyrs under the throne, cry out to God in the fifth seal, Revelation 6, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? If you remember, in the first seal judgments, at the very last seal, God answered that prayer before. In the seventh seal, in Revelation chapter 8, It says, "...in the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints..." That's what's in those censers. "...rose before the Lord from the hand of the angel." Those are those prayers going up to God. And what does God do in response? 
Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth in judgment. You see what we see here? We see another angle of this. The angels have those censers once again that were filled with the prayers of saints going up to God. And what does God do with those censers that are now emptied of the prayers of the saints? Verse 7 says this, One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. It's picturing the angels bringing in the prayers and exchanging the prayers for the wrath of God, the, the wine of the wrath of God that we talked about last week and or a couple weeks ago in chapter 14. And it's being poured out on the earth. I don't know about you, but this is astonishing to me to think that your prayers and my prayers result in these plagues. Kids, you ever think about that when you pray the Lord's Prayer? doesn't matter how old you are, how mature you are in faith, how strong your faith is, how weak it is. It also doesn't matter what sin you've done in the past or how sincere you pray or how wise your prayer requests are. If you are in Christ and you're praying for deliverance, God will answer that prayer. This is proof of it. You know, sometimes we can forget that God wants to destroy evil far more than us. We can forget and we can despair. Lord, why aren't you showing up? Why aren't you answering my prayer? And if God's answer doesn't come right away, it will. So let us be patient. Let us trust that the Lord's timing and answer will be perfect for our good and for His glory. And that's really the second goal of the final exodus. The first is to answer prayer, but the second is to glorify the name of God, to display His glory to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 8. And the sanctuary, that's the temple again, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary. Now you might think, well, that's, that's kind of weird. It was just opened up. The angels were right there inside of it. But now we have the closing of this tabernacle. Does that mean there's no atonement then? That these, these plague judgments, there's no way to be forgiven. There's no intercession. There's no access to God. Is that what he's talking about? Well, no. In the plague judgments, we see time and time again, it's not that the people don't have access, can't, can't have forgiveness. They won't repent. Their stubborn hardness, just like Pharaoh, keeps them from repenting. So it's not that they can't be forgiven or that there's no atonement here. So what's going on then? Well, where else in Scripture have we seen the temple close like this, the tabernacle close like this, filled with glory where no one else can enter? Two places. At the end of Exodus, Exodus 40, when Moses dedicates the temple, the glory of the Lord fills the temple and he can't even go in. The mediator that God has set apart. And then we see it in Second Chronicles 7 when Solomon dedicates the temple again. Glory fills the temple and not even the priests can go in. Why? Because they're not holy enough to be in God's presence. And that's the implication here. Creation is not holy enough for God to dwell among this entire world. Until. Until what? Look at the end of verse 8. Until the seven plagues 
of the seven angels were finished. You see what God's doing? These plagues will complete His salvation, will destroy evil and sin for good, and pave the way so God's glory can fill a new temple. The earthly temple. The new heavens and new earth. And really what it does is it descends from heaven as this new creation. The people of God. The city of God. We see that in Revelation 21, verse 3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, or crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Don't you long for that day? Long for the day when Christ will come and set everything right. Brothers and sisters, let's pray for that day. Let's pray that God would deliver us from evil like this. Not from just the presence of evil. Not just rid us from being around evil or just the evil in our heart. That God would destroy evil for good and His glory would fill all creation. That's His goal. That should be our goal and what we pray for as well. We pray that the Lord would do that. Father, we thank You for this chance to hear Your Word, to see Your work in our world. Pray, Father, as we go into these judgments, these plagues the next few weeks, Lord, that You would soften our heart. Help us to see Your beauty and glory and justice. Guard us from being tempted that You're overreacting or that wrath is uncharacteristic of You. Help us to see Your holiness and Your goodness as You deliver Your people through the very judgment that You bring on our enemies. Lord, help us long for that day. Answer our prayers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.